brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome to the show, everybody. Okay, uh, we're going to talk about uh, social influence, and that's called social psychology from an educational perspective. You know, we have to look at how much of me is actually me. You know, a lot of people are heavily influenced by social culture. As a matter of fact, overwhelmingly influenced by social culture as far as what to do. I mean, and what they, I mean, how they think and how they operate and what, they're, they're, uh, what they think are their original ideas. You know, we're influenced by everything, including culture, race, uh, uh, religion, uh, society in general, where we live in general, the people we're surrounded by, our family, our parents, uh, our friends, our spouses, our children. I mean, all of us are made up of behaviors and things that are collected from other people. Very rarely do individuals have original thought and original emotion and original responses. A lot of our responses become programmed, and that's programmed by what is expected of us in our jobs, in our, uh, in our personal life, in our family uh, traditions, in our cultural traditions, and we're made up of a hodgepodge of all those influences. So why have to take a long look at ourselves and start deciding how much of us will be defined by others? Well, you know, we're souls living a human life. We're here uh, for a reason. We're here, our soul is here to collect a journey. And that journey is defined by our human life. And if we just live a human life, then we don't individualize. That means that we just become a social animal, insignificant to the human race, just passing through. But if we are a soul living a human life, we have a reason to be here and a purpose to be here. And that means that we have to individually define ourselves. So so understanding how much of us is influenced by others and how much of us is us is very important argument to have with ourselves is a very important discussion that we have alone with ourselves to decide what choices are we going to make and how are we going to operate without following what social uh, expectations are. I mean, if you just look at the past election, uh, which was very interesting from a scientific perspective because Donald Trump basically rewrote how to run a campaign. And he did that through original thought. And I'm sure he learned it from the Brexit people and, you know, having a direct dialogue with people. That was a very smart move. Despite whether you're Republican or Democrat, you have to admire the fact that he did something different and spoke directly to the people. You know, what is it that shapes our attitudes? Why are some people such great leaders? How, you know, how, do, how does prejudice develop? How can we overcome it? That's what we're trying to explore here. These, these are the questions of interest in, in the field of social psychology, and, and they can tackle uh, these kind of issues that can have a significant in, impact on individual health, well-being, uh, from understanding why bullying is, takes place, why people smoke cigarettes, why people drink. You know, aggressions take place to analyze why people sometimes fail to help individuals in need. I mean, there's lots of understanding of why people 
would have issues helping other people. You know, social psychology, just as a definition, is, is a discipline that uses scientific methods. So, you, to understand and explain how the thoughts, the feelings, the behaviors of individuals are influenced by the actual imagined or implied presence of other human beings. Uh, essentially, social psychology is all about understanding how each person's individual behavior is influenced by the social environment that that behavior takes place. And you also uh, probably already realize that other people can have a dramatic influence on the way you act and choices you make. Consider how you might behave in a situation if you are all alone versus if there were other people in the room. Decisions you make, the behaviors you exhibit might depend not only on how many people are present, but exactly who you're around. You know, for example, you're, you're likely to behave much differently when you are around a group of close friends than you would around a group of colleagues or supervisors from work. So, so social psychology looks at a wide range of topics, including group behavior, social perception, leadership, nonverbal, conformity, aggression, and prejudice. So it's important that it's not just about looking at social influences. Social perception and social interaction are also vital to understanding our social behaviors. The way we see other people, the way we judge other people can become a powerful role in a wide variety of actions and decisions. So why do people socially conform? Well, they go, well, other people have done the work, so I guess it's working for them. I will do what they're doing. Or I don't want conflict in my life, so what I'll do is I will do what other people are doing and take on the opinions of other people because they seem to know what they're doing. And, and it's basically laziness, and we are very lazy creatures, and basically uh, we will do cut corners wherever we can cut corners, and that usually is, is uh, confiding and conforming to what other people are doing so that we can blend in. You know, it's amazing when you go to other countries how hard – it is to blend in with their culture. Um, sometimes it's easy, but the bottom line is they operate on a different wavelength than we all do. And to join their world, uh, we usually look very foreign because we're not behaving in their cultural context. We're behaving in our cultural context, which may clash with their cultural context. Just in the Asian countries alone, if you think about it, you can't chew gum there. You could get arrested for chewing gum because it's considered rude. Uh, you know, that's amazing. You know, being the typical uh, gum chewing Americans that we are, we could go over there, pop one in our mouth, and the next thing you know, get a, get a juicy fruit, and the next thing you know, you're cleaned up into the jail. <laughs> you know, it's not looked at as a very nice thing. You know, so we have to understand how this influence is about to take place in our life and when it begins to take place. Well, it begins when we're born. It begins when we're born, and the verbals and the nonverbals are all begun to be gauged by the baby at that point. You know, they also have to understand how to become accepted by their parents from a sense of what they do to mirror what their parents do. You know, uh, there's been a lot of research on conformity as far as this understanding of why teenagers, some guys sometimes go to great lengths to fit in with their social group, sometimes to the detriment of their own health, wellness, and family. You know, as a result, you know, psychologists have been able to develop public health programs and treatment approaches aimed at helping teenagers resist uh, potentially harmful behaviors like smoking, drinking, substance abuse. You know, Plato 
referred to uh, back in the Greek days uh, when the Greeks uh, were forming their universities. Uh, he referred to the idea of the crowd mind and concepts such as social loafing and social facilitation were introduced in the 1800s. And it wasn't until after World War II that research on social psychology really started. You know, the horrors of the Holocaust led re- researchers to study the effects of social influence, conformity, obedience. You know, what would explain why so many people participated in terrible, evil actions? Well, That's always been a question. And, you know, were people only following orders or were they bowing to social pressure? Or were there some other forces at work that led people to engage in the devastating actions? You know, so social psychologists looked at that after World War II and they were able to uh, gain a greater understanding uh, by looking at things such as authority, compliance and obedience and the consequences to not following those. You know, and so, you know, social psychology is so important in identifying what makes an individual and what makes a social creature. You know, we all need to focus on what are our individual traits? What are our individual characteristics? What are our thoughts? And and how much have we gained that from other people? And take a really good look at yourself and ask, why am I really doing this? Why am I not doing what I want to do and what is it that I would rather do rather than what I've learned to do. You know, that means that we have to embrace conflict because once you start making individual choices, that means you become a minority and there's always a resistance to minority from the majority in society. That's just how it operates, folks. They question everything that's, that's about change. They get scared of everything that's about change because they're, they don't identify the motives of the decisions that are made to make you the individual individual person you are. So it takes great courage to become an individual in our society. And that's across the world. So what is this conformity thing? You know, uh, the, you know, the, the basically we're not often aware when we're conforming and it's our home base, our default mode. And, and we do that once again out of laziness so we don't have to think. You know, to keep ourselves in, in, in the warm confines of conformity, we have to rely on ver- two very independent and related types of social cues. First, we look to others' information about what's going on, which is informational cues. And second, we look for others to see what to do about it, which is normative cues. And we start to seek out these cues early, you know, as a notion of uh, self begins to crystallize in the second year of life, basically the child begins the effort to align the self socially. An infant who falls down looks up at the parents to gauge whether to cry. If mom reacts in fear, tears will follow. If the mother laughs and reassures, usually there's no tears. You know, this early attentiveness to informational cues is called social referencing. Shortly after the child begins to align their behavior with those of the group by conforming to expectations to share, to wait, to not hit. And yes, that's what preschool is all about. And it begins to conform you. It begins to shape you into a societal person rather than an individual. So we use others to figure out what's going on, and this can be a very good thing. We, we uh, do consultation, compromise, education, information exchange are, are basically the levers of all civilization. So cumulative data from many can solve bigger problems, just like the cumulative physical effort can move heavier objects. So informational cues, however, can also mislead us. You know, 
two, uh, there's two really good examples. Number one, there was Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast about an alien nation led to panic because many people who missed the beginning of the broadcast turned to each other to find out what was going on, misforming each other. A recent uh, stampede on a bridge in Kent. And by the way, a lot of people killed themselves on that uh, on that uh, War of the Worlds radio broadcast because they thought we were really being invaded by Mars. And uh, also... Uh, there was a stampede on a bridge in Cambodia that resulted in more than 350 deaths, which was blamed on the fact that many of the rural people present did not know that it's normal to, for a hanging bridge to, to uh, slay, uh, sway slightly. So, you know, throughout history, bad information gleaned from ill-informed, deluded, malevolent others has been responsible for many a military, financial, and personal uh, calamity. You know, um... Uh, Russians, many Russians were killed by Napoleon's troops when he coughed and they thought he said charge and so about a thousand people in Russia were killed and he never even corrected the mistake that it was just a cough. You know, people are reluctant to break with group norms, even if the group is small, ad hoc, or made of complete strangers. That's why trust is so important. It's a big rage issue for people because when it's broken, we feel betrayed because now we have to work harder to gather information and to uh, search for what we need to conform. And so naturally, when trust, uh, someone breaks trust and does something individually, it's looked at as selfish, and then suddenly... Uh, there's a retribution against that person and that other one who doesn't trust starts to seek a majority support group for themselves because they remained within the social structure. The other person did not. And uh, it's sad, but, but um, you know, more potent, you know, normative cues tend to be a very uh, more potent when they come from people whose friendship, love, and esteem we value. So we, we look inward, uh, such as... Uh, you know, bonded groups where they are more powerful in influencing who we are. You know, if you want to know whether your child smokes pot, ask yourself whether their friends do. If they do, then your kid probably does. You know, regardless of the values you've taught them, looking outward, tight groups of friends will often make a decision that is bad for addressing the external situation because they seek to maintain cohesion. So, you know, conformity is a part of our hardware, facilitating our survival, bringing us comfort. But on the other hand, uh, the tendency has been responsible for much of human misery. One could argue, particularly if one is steeped in in the uh, American ethos of rugged individualism, then the answer to a group conformity gone awry is found in the acts of individual nonconformity. But that's incorrect. You know, for humans, both the population and the solution are group-based. Now, here in the United States, we do operate and did operate on the beginnings of our country off of rugged individualism, meaning we're no longer going to follow what was prescribed to us from the countries and the cultures we came from. We're going to come here and we're going to break from that, and we're actually going to start to become our own individuals and develop our own businesses, our own corporations, and our own way of doing things. And so, there was a lot of reinvention in the United States when the United States first uh, became, but since then, we've now formed our own normative and informational cues. So, you know, and now we have a a defined sense of society. 
you know, but that dual system also explains, you know, social change over time as cues diverge. Nor- normative cues keep pr- uh, the majority opinion in power through public acceptance, while contradictory informational cues affecting private acceptance may spread stealthily throughout the culture underground until they gather sufficient momentum, and then they rise, and then they upend the older order. So nonconformity in itself is a group phenomenon. And uh, as we can see with our election and the upturning of, of Obamacare and all that stuff, and once again, I'm not going from a political perspective. I'm going from a social perspective. You can see how emotional people are becoming about the fact that we are no longer in a conformative uh, state of government. And so it's going to be interesting how our culture gets influenced by this and, and what this does for our country. All right. Now, uh, we're going to talk about group inference, uh, influence. Now, the, the reference group, the, the term comes from because an individual uses a relevant group as a standard of reference. It may be their religion. It may be their uh, political party, whatever. But there's a reference group that a lot of people have on certain issues. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about perception, group influence, social perception. And then we're going to talk about ways to influence people. Come right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. and connected on our lively award-winning healthy living power hour star style be the star you are with hosts cynthia bryan and heather Brittany. live every wednesday at 4 p.m pacific on the voice america empowerment channel tune in to the power party for positive uplifting life-changing talk radio visit starstyleradio.com It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? 
The email address is drgbmft at svcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, now we're talking about uh, social influence. And right now I'm looking at group influence. But, you know, the truth is, if you if you want to understand uh, social thinking, just watch commercials. And you've got the Super Bowl coming up here, folks. So, you know, watch commercials and then ask yourself, who are they trying to sell that product too, because they're using social influence through the entire commercial to sell an idea to people about what their product represents, what it what it is to them. You know, it's it's amazing how loyal people can get to a, a brand of beer or a, a brand of scotch or whiskey or whatever, um, uh, uh, cola, whatever it is, uh, Starbucks which I am heavily influenced by. And uh, <laughs> so you have to look at how these commercials affect us. You know, aspirational reference group refers to those others against whom one would like to compare yourself to. For example, many firms use athletes as their spokespeople, and these represent what many people would ideally like to be. So they associate themselves as an aspirational reference group for a product. So uh, Whoever is correlated to a product, that is the kind of person that they want to be. And so a lot of people will use uh, celebrities and will use athletes to uh, become that aspirational figure. Also, associative uh, reference groups include people who are more realistically represented, the individual's current equals or non-equals, like co-workers, neighbors, members of churches, clubs, organizations, you know, so that is kind of when uh, you're trying to say, hey, this person's just like me. Um, finally, there's the dissociative reference group, which includes people that the individual would not like to be. For, for example, the gap uh, came out because many of the younger people wanted to actively disassociate from parents and uh, older, uncool people, you know, so it's amazing how people can get loyal to a product or a store or a certain kind of brand and they'll just grab onto that thing. There's also the primary reference groups and they come with a great deal of influence. Members of a fraternity, a church, there's also work. There's also a secondary reference group which tend to have somewhat less influence. Members of a boating club or a, a, a tennis club or a, a country club. Um, another uh, typology divides reference groups into informational kinds. So, it influence based on some uh, members' knowledge, you know, normative members, which is the average member, what they're like, are they cool? And then the, 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 the sense of identification, how, do, how can I identify? So, that's breaking down, you know, the group influences and how that comes about. Now, what is perception? You know, our perception is an approximation of reality. So that means that every truth is their truth. It is not the truth. Unfortunately, a lot of egotistical people think they their truth is the only truth, and their job is to say, no, 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 no. This is the truth. Blah, 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 blah. You got that all wrong. God forbid they listen to somebody else's truth that doesn't register with theirs. That's called respect. A lot of people don't have that quality. So, uh, our brain attempts to make sense out of the stimuli to which we are exposed. And this works well, for example, when we see a friend 300 feet away at his or her correct uh, height, 
our uh, our perception is sometimes off. For example, certain shapes of ice cream containers look like they contain more than rectangular ones with the same volume. So we kind of have to look at the approximation of reality. Is that really my friend? And we have to, at at what point do we confirm that that is our friend? You know. Also, there's other factors in perception, such as uh, sequential factors, influence of our, perfect, our, our our perception, which is exposure, which involves the extent to which we encounter a stimulus. For example, we're exposed to numerous commercial messages while driving in the, on the freeway. Billboards, radio ads, bumper stickers, signs, banners on shopping malls that we pass. Most of the exposure is random, but we don't plan to seek it out. However, if we're shopping for a car, we may deliberately seek out advertisements and tune in when dealer advertisements come on the radio. Also, exposure is not enough to significantly impact the individual, at least not based on a single trial. You know, certain advertisements or commercial exposures, such as a, a, a swoosh logo, we all know what that is, Nike, are based on extensive repetition rather than that much of a conscious attention. We see the swish, we relate to Nike, and then we also relate to the, you know, all their slogans, you know, that they that they have out there. And I'm not going to embellish them and give them uh, all this exposure to myself. But uh, when commercials come on during television programs, uh, that is something that we begin to tune into. And we tend to focus unconsciously or subconsciously on them just to kind of get through to the next part of the the program that we're watching. Also, interpretation involves making sense out of the stimulus. For example, when we see a red can, we may categorize it as Coca-Cola. So, uh, you know, there's Weber's Law, and it suggests that consumers' ability to detect changes in stimulus intensely appear to be strongly related to the intensity of that stimulus to begin with. So, for instance, if you are correlated yourself to a or got yourself into a traumatic event like a a car accident, you may form a different type of behavior based on the influence of that particular trauma, that particular event. And that may begin to be how you react to any similar stimulus, like maybe somebody driving recklessly, driving drunk, whatever. We may all of a sudden have a new perception on those particular things where we react as we did when we were having the accident. You know, there's also several factors that influence the extent to which stimulus will be noted. One obvious issue is relevance. You know, consumers, when they have a choice, are also more likely to attend a pleasant stimulus. You know, when when uh, athletes, when teams win, people want to attend. When they're not winning, people don't attend as often. So there's a sense of uh, relevance. Is this team relevant? And if they're not, then they're always going to be struggling. You know, surprising stimuli are, are, are uh, likely to get more attention, like a survival instinct requires us to give more attention to something unknown that may require action. You know, a greater contrast, difference between the stimulus and its surroundings, as well as greater prominence, like a greater size, a greater center placement, tend to increase the likelihood of processing and processing quickly. There's also uh, subliminal stimulus. So, you know, back in the 30s, it was reported that on, on selected evenings, moviegoers in a theater had been exposed to isolated frames of words, such as drink Coca-Cola, eat popcorn embedded in the movie. And these frames went by so fast that people did not consciously notice them. But it was reported that on nights when those frames were present, 
Coke and popcorn sales were significantly higher on days that uh, they were left off. So, you know, this led Congress basically to ban the use of subliminal advertising. First of all, there's a question as to whether this experiment ever took place or whether this information was simply made up. Secondly, no one has been able to, to replicate the findings, but that is called subliminal um, influence. All right, now what is social perception? Social perception refers to the uh, different mental processes that we use to form impressions of other people. And this includes uh, not just how we form these impressions, but the different conclusions we make about other people based on our impressions. And by the way, social perception is how you fight prejudice. Because if society in general takes a different uh, uh, different uh, look at prejudice and says, let's say in America that we're all America, no, no matter what color, creed, culture, background, whatever, it's all the same. We're all Americans. Now, society has migrated more to that perception. However, there is prejudice in our culture, but th- there's uh, and there's a lot of it. But but the deal is is that we as Americans, the more we form the social perception that we're all equal. That's what people will begin to migrate to as a society because they understand that they will have a safer, more prosperous life within the society if they follow the social perception. You know, when, when, you, when you visit the grocery store after work, you might draw conclusions about the cashier who checks out, even though you know very little about this person. But this le- allows us to make snap judgments and, and decisions, but it can also lead to biased or stereotype perceptions of other people. So, you know, let's take a closer look at how a person's perception works and the impact it has on our day-to-day interactions. Obviously, person perception can be a very subjective process that can be impacted by a number number of variables. You know, factors that can influence the impressions you form of other people include the characteristics of the person you're observing, the context of the situation, your own personal traits, and your past experiences. So, people form impressions of others very quickly with no minimal inform only minimal information and you know that's not always cool you know it's better if we have a life where we're more peaceful where we we're feeling safe and we're able to have our own reactions to people we're able to assimilate our own personal reactions rather than snap judgments on various people. Now, what do we look for in social norms? Well, we look for physical cues. They can play a, a very important role. If you see a woman uh, dressed in a professional-looking uh, outfit, you may immediately assume that she works for a formal setting or perhaps a law firm or a bank. Uh, salience of the information we perceive is also important. Generally, we tend to focus on the most obvious points rather than noting background information. More novel or obvious uh, a factor is, the more likely we are to focus on it. If you see a woman dressed in a tailored suit and her hair styled in a bright pink mohawk, you're likely to pay more attention to her unusual hairstyle than her sensible business attire. You know, one of the mental uh, shortcuts that we have uh, use and person perception is known as social categorization. In this process, we mentally basically categorize people into different groups based on common characteristics. You know, if you see a bum on the street, if you see somebody out there who's poor, uh, walking around maybe with a cigarette hanging out, they're, you know, haven't taken a bath in a month, you might just categorize them all in the same category of people, you know, and, and sadly, uh, we tend to form opinions based on these people and react to them as where we would react to the group 
ra- uh, rather than react to them as we as people would want to react to them. You know, we as people have a lot more compassion than we do in a social, uh, through social perception. And, and with many mental shortcuts, social categorization has both positive and negative aspects. One of the strengths of social categorization is that it allows people to make judgments very quickly. Realistically, you simply do not have time to get to know each and every person you come in contact with. Uh, Using social categorization basically allows you to make decisions, establish expectations of how people will behave in certain situations very quickly, which allows you to focus on other things. So it's it's a lazy, it's a lazy aspect. Also, imagine... You're getting on a bus, but there are only two seats available. One seat is next to a silver-haired, petite little woman, and the other seat is next to a burly, grim-faced man. Based on your immediate impression, you sit next to the elderly woman, who unfortunately turns out to be quite skilled at uh, picking pockets. Because of social categorization, you immediately judged that the woman was harmless and the man was threatening, leading to a loss of your wallet. Also, there's a, a, a implicit personality uh, theory, and it's a collection of beliefs and assumptions that we have about uh, certain traits that are linked to other characteristics and behaviors. Once we know something about a, a cardinal trait, we assume that the person also exhibits other traits that are commonly linked to that characteristic. Let's just look at, let's say, a pope. Once they become a pope, we have the expectations of what a pope is about, and we always judge based on what that pope does how good a pope they're going to be based on how they conform to the popish behavior that we basically umbrella them with. You know, in prejudice, prejudice and racism have caused enormous suffering across history. You know, we have to look at what is stereotyping and how does it relate to prejudice? Stereotyping goes hand in hand with prejudice. The term stereotype is used in social science and, and, and you know, basically... The, the term uh, stereotype people, we attribute to a series of traits to them based on one trait that signals their membership in a particular group. You know, a lot of people are very enraged about um, Trump's view on uh, uh, Muslims because basically he's social typing them as dangerous people. And so, yes, there's a lot of dangerous things that go on uh, in the Middle East. They have a completely different culture, but applying it across the board can be very dangerous. So you hear a lot of people protesting against the idea that all the Muslims are dangerous rather than the crazy Muslims that uh, feel like they are God and they need to destroy all people and this life isn't worth living. Uh, for anybody that is not a part of their religion. You know, uh, we, we, we stereotype Hispanics, maybe a male Hispanic as, as macho and librarians and are introverts. You know, the definition of stereotypes are limiting and disregard people's individuality. They also lend themselves to negative and derogatory assumptions. And when, when that happens, it turns into prejudice. So stereotyping is where prejudice comes from. It is the roots of prejudice. You know, and how does our tendency to categorize lend itself to stereotyping? Well, we classify our experience into categories, and it's a fundamental universal aspect of human cognition, human thought. We create concepts in order to make sense of endless complex encounter with our environment. 
And this is a necessary part of human thought, allowing us to process information efficiently and quickly. If we did not create categories, our entire life would be a buzzing mass of confusion. We would be overstimulated. In social categorization, we place people into categories. And uh, so people also reflexively distinguish members of in-groups, which is the subject of a member and the members of the outgroups. And it's so interesting, you know, if you really think about this this thought of, of stereotyping and categorizing, this is what a lot of people who are very sensitive, compassionate, uh, empathetic, these kind of people have a lot of trouble with stereotyping. Their, their issues are related to social prejudices and stereotyping. They tend to want to make everybody be correlated and related to as individuals. And even and the individual becomes the minority, whereas the majority doesn't exist. And so a lot of sensitive people don't want majority thinking. And that is what their rebellion is against. And we have to understand that that makes them very sensitive people. And they have individual opinions, but they usually over-communicate their prejudices against the majority. Um, in social group, uh, chauvinism is natural. Some uh, uh, capacity for favoritism is one of its own uh, group over others appears to be a very human tendency. We tend to feel safer in a group, so uh, we basically uh, fight and, uh, and, and overstate our case and walk around like roosters when we are a part of a group because we feel safe and we feel that others agree with us. So uh, how do we reduce social prejudice? You know, given our, our multi-ethnic world, it's of great importance to understand the ways to reduce it. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to talk about it in just a moment. Come back. us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. The Compassionate Life is about just that. There are so many human beings who have made a name for themselves by being humanitarians. They have become individuals who are known for being selfless, kind, and compassionate. Host Dr. Brittany King is also one of these humanitarians. Each week she shares stories of kindness that she has experienced throughout the world, both as a contributor and recipient of these acts of love and kindness. Listen every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but... 
If you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, now we're talking about uh, social influence. So, you know, how do we reduce social prejudice? Well, it's an interesting question. But uh, intergroup contact under positive conditions can reduce social prejudice. Like uh, uh, conditions would include cooperation towards shared goals, equal status between groups, and the support of local authorities and cultural norms. You know, consider uh, thinking about, you know, positive emotional experiences with members of different groups can also influence negative stereotypes. Having close friends from different groups is especially effective in this regard. There are many uh, several reasons that this would happen. Number one, it's near impossible to hold on to simplistic negative stereotypes of someone you know well. And secondly, a close relationship promotes identification with the other person and of the groups they belong to. In other words, your relationships with other people become a part of who you are. And this is referred to as evolving. <laughs> so, all right. So how do we influence people? You know, it's important to note that none of these methods I'm going to mention are under what we would term the dark arts. <laughs> so anything that might be harmful to someone in any way, especially of their self-esteem, is not included here. The, these are just simple social ways to win friends and influence people using psychology without being a jerk or making someone feel bad. Number one, get favors. Get someone to do a favor for you. Uh, you know, uh, they call this the Benjamin Franklin effect. Legend has it Biz- Benjamin Franklin once wanted to win over a man who didn't like him. And he liked the man to, he asked the man to lend him a rare book. And when the book was received, he thanked him graciously. As a result, this man who had never wanted to speak to him before became good friends with Benjamin Franklin. And so, you know, quoting him, uh, Franklin, he said uh, that he... He that has once done you kindness will be more ready to do you another than he whom you yourself have obliged. So, you know, if you look at this, and and by the way, that language is so ancient it's even hard to read it. So, uh, uh, it's much easier to get influence if you develop interaction with people that have had a negative view of you. Um, it may seem uh, counterintuitive, but the theory here is pretty sound. If someone does a favor for you, they are likely to rationalize that you must have been worth doing a favor for and decide, therefore, they must likely like you. All right. Aim high. Ask for way more than you want at the first and then scale it back later. And this is sometimes known as the door in the face approach. You, you start by throwing a really ridiculous request at someone, a request that they will most likely reject. And then when uh, you then come back shortly thereafter and ask for something much less ridiculous, the thing you actually wanted in the first place. This trick is also a sound counterintuitive, but the idea behind it is that the person will feel bad for refusing your first request, even though it was unreasonable. So when you ask for someone reasonable, they will feel obliged to help you out this time. You know, so it it works extremely well. And uh, so you ask for the bigger, and then you ask for what you really wanted, because the person feels obliged to help you the second time and not anyone else. 
Names. Names is another way to influence people. Use a person's name or their title, depending on the situation. You know, Dale Carnegie, the, he wrote the book, How to Influence, Win Friends and Influence People. And he believed that using someone's name was incredibly important. You know, he said that a person's name is the sweetest sound in any language for that person. A name is the core part of our identity, so hearing it validates our existence, which makes us even more inclined to feel positively about the person who validated us. But using a title or a form of address can also have strong effects. According to uh, uh, the as-if principle, the idea is that you act like a certain type of person and you will become that person, and it's a little bit like a a self-fulfilling prophecy. To use this influence on others, you can refer to them as what you want them to be, so they will start thinking of themselves in the same way. So this can be as simple as calling an acquaintance you want to be closer to, a friend or a mate, whenever you see them, and referring to someone you want to work for as boss. But, you know, they, they warn that this can come off as very corny sometimes. All right, now, flattery. Flatterly, flattery, blah, flattery will actually get you everywhere. This is well, you, this one may seem obvious at first, but there's also some important caveats to it. For starters, it's important to note that if flattery is not seen as sincere, it's going to do you more harm than good. You know, uh, if you look at what motivates people, a lot of people in this world shine. Their face just shines when someone is flattering them. You know, to put it simply. Scientists have found that people tend to look for cognitive balance, trying to always keep their thoughts and feelings organized in a similar way. So if you flatter someone who has high self-esteem and this is seen as sincere, they will like you more as you are validating how, uh, how they feel about themselves. However, if you flatter someone who has low self-esteem, there's a good chance it would backfire because uh, to them, it might even make them feel like you're trying to influence them because it interferes with how they perceive themselves. Um, that, of course, does not mean you should demean a person of low self-esteem. But the deal is, is you have to recognize not everybody has high self-esteem. But but for these people who have low self-esteem, you know, the deal is just say thank you. You don't have to agree or disagree. Just say thank you. If they give you a compliment or if they flatter you, say thank you. Because I'll tell you what. All predators, all sexual predators, all people that are trying to get your attention are going to use flattery as a way to get your attention if that if they have an ulterior motive. So just say thank you and, and walk on your way. Also mirroring. Now mirroring is very important and mirroring has a lot to do with energy. You know, I tend to, when I'm working with a couple, I tend to go to the energy of the person who has the lowest energy of the couple so that both can relate to me. And it, it works uh, very, very well because in, in, in all reason, if you mirror that communication, the person instantly becomes feeling comfortable. Now, that may mean their tone. That may mean their energy. That may mean, even mean their posture. You know, something some people can do mirroring very naturally. People with the skill are considered to be chameleons. They try to blend into their environment by copying other people's behaviors, their mannerisms, even their speech patterns. However, this skill can also be used consciously and is a great way to make you more likable. Um, you know, when someone mimics their behavior, they're actually nicer, more agreeable to the other Uh, people in general and that's just a human common sense thing 
even those not involved in the situation will like you better because you relate better to other people. You know, it's likely that a reason why this works is that mirroring someone's behavior makes them feel validated. And while this validation is likely to be more most positively associated with the person who validated him, they will feel greater self-esteem and thus be more confident, happier, and well-disposed towards others. Also, if you're wanting to get somebody to do a favor for you, ask them when they're tired. Ask for favors when someone is tired. When someone is tired, they're more susceptible to everything someone may say, whether it's a statement or a request. The reason for this is that when people are tired, it isn't just their physical body, but it's their mental energy that has dropped as well. So when you ask uh, a request of someone who's tired, you probably won't get a defined response, a definite response, but probably an I'll do it tomorrow because they don't want to deal with the decisions at the moment. The next day, you're likely to follow through because people tend to keep their word and it's natural psychologically to want to follow through and something you said you would do. So if we're influencing people, we want to also request uh things that they can't refuse. Start with a request they can't refuse and work your way up. And, and this is a reverse uh, uh, of the door in the face technique. Inst instead of starting with a large request, you start with something really small. Once someone has committed to helping you, agreeing to something, they're now more likely to agree to a bigger request. So, uh, you know, when you when you look at this phenomenon, it, it's it's basic marketing skill. They, they start by getting uh, people to express support for the rainforest and the environment, which is fairly simple request. Then they then they basically start getting them to uh, uh, support the environment and also uh, buy products that support rainforests and the environment. That's done in marketing. However, don't start one request and immediately assail them for another. You have to take your time to basically build your audience. Also, you have to be quiet. Don't correct people when they're wrong. You know, Dale Carnegie also pointed out in that book that telling someone that they are wrong is basically unnecessary and does the opposite of enduring them to you. There's actually a way to show disagreement and, and turn it into a polite conversation without telling someone they're wrong, which, which strikes the core of their ego. And, and this is called um, the Rasberger, Ransberger uh, pivot. And it was uh, invented by a guy named Ray Ransberger and uh, Marshall Fritz. Fritz. You know, the idea behind it is pretty simple. Instead of arguing, listen to what they have to say and then seek to understand how they feel and why. Then you explain the common ground that you share with them and you use that as a starting point to explain your position. This makes them more likely to listen to what you have to say and allows you to correct them without them losing face. Also, repeating stuff back. That is another way to influence people. If you paraphrase people and repeat back to them what they just said, one of the most positive ways to influence others is to show them that you really understand how they feel and then you have real empathy for them. And one of the most effective ways to do this is paraphrasing what they say and repeating it back to them. It's called reflective listening. And studies have shown that when therapists use reflective listening, people were likely to d disclose a whole lot more emotion and have a much greater therapeutic relationship with the therapist and this easily transfers over to talking to your friends you know if you listen what they have to say rephrase it as a question to confirm that you understand it they're going to be more uh, comfortable talking to you they're also going to have a better friendship with you and be more likely to listen to what you have to say because you showed that you care about them 
Nodding. Nodding is another way to influence people. Not a lot while you talk, especially when leading up to asking for a favor. You know, uh, scientists have basically found that when people nod while listening to something, they're more likely to be in agreement with it. Also, they have discovered that when someone is nodding in front of, of them, it is natural for them to do the same. And this is understandable because humans are, are, are well known at mimicking behaviors, especially those that they consider to have positive connotations. So if you want to be extra convincing, nod regularly throughout the conversation. The person who you're talking to will find it hard not to nod themselves and they will start to feel agreeable towards you and what you are saying. And by the way, this all works in relationships extremely well. So what is this nonverbal, nonverbal persuasion? And, and these things is like a, a compliment. They regulate, they substitute for, and they, they accent a verbal message. Uh, they are, there are many types of nonverbal communications. We just talked about nodding. But also, you know, people look at their face. Uh, face is also how people can persuade people. Happiness being shown in certain ways, sadness, fear, anger are, are easily identifiable across cultures. Uh, facial expressions play a very important role in closeness. Like eye messages are messages given only with the eyes. So in American culture, eye contact is a sign of honesty, credibility, warmth, and involvement. You know, in other cultures, uh, uh, require contact, eye contact, and some don't want eye contact. Like if you make eye contact with somebody on the streets of New York, you may be dead in five seconds. You know, uh, conversations without eye contact res, uh, represent, and this is in general, and this is usually in one-on-one -on -one communication, uh, disinterest, inattention, rudeness, shyness, and deception. So eye messages show connection to others, attentiveness, involvement, immediacy, but prolonged stares uh, show negative, intimidating uh, expressions. So eye messages have a very uh, wondrous aspect, uh, especially like the rolling of the eyes may also humiliate the person that is uh, actually uh, talking to you. <clears throat> so when we look at the first year of life, we learn how to communicate without words. So infants learn very early the difference between a scowl and a smile, and they learn how to convey their own feelings through nonverbal communication. You know, in the workplace, effective communication can be used to improve performance and produce desired results. There's many non-nonverbal uh, cues that are used every day in the workplace, which are uh, uh, professional uh, speaking, handshake, uh, first impression, positive or negative. Men tend to have better handshaking skills and etiquette. Um, handshakes should be inviting, strong, but not overpowering. A workplace touching is often discouraged. So, you know, we have to look at all these nonverbal influences that make up people and decide, is that what I agree with as far as who I am? That's our show. Our next show is humanism. Humanism, to be humane. You know, I want to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback. DRGBMFT at SBCGlobal.net or Twitter at DRGBMFT. Now, remember, it's better to have love and loss then be with a psycho your whole life. Also, remember, if someone says, you look familiar, where do, you, where do I know you from? Ask them if they watch porn. Thanks for listening. The 
that's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 